And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to a special Arizona edition of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and I'm so happy you could join us today. As an Arizona-based media outlet, we've had a ringside seat to witness some of the most contentious fights to preserve the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act. The political opponents have been unrelenting in their efforts to thwart the industry here, but what they haven't counted on is the perseverance of heavyweight activists who are armed with facts, passion, and some of the brightest legal minds in the cannabis industry to duke it out with all of the jurists, legislators, and government officials. The one thing the opposition has in their favor at the moment is a majority in government who fail to realize that a vast majority of people in Arizona approve of the state's medical marijuana policy. We have an opportunity to shift the paradigm in the upcoming election, which is why we felt it was important for voters to know where candidates stand on the issues. For that, we decided to bring in an activist who has been a prize fighter when it comes to duking it out with legislators and powerful naysayers. So let's get right to it. Michael Weiser first appeared on our show when he was running for Congress to represent Arizona's 4th Congressional District in 2016. He was also appointed by Bernie Sanders to represent Arizona as a delegate at the Democratic National Convention. Today, Michael is one of Arizona's most ardent cannabis activists, constantly working to enact improvements to the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act. He's also the state director of the Arizona chapter of the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, also known as NORML. Each year, NORML compiles a list of candidates running for office in each state and grades them on their advocacy for cannabis law reform. Michael Weiser was tasked with compiling the list of candidates here in Arizona, so I'm really eager to see what he has to say, and we will be sharing some of that information with you. So thank you so much for joining me today, Michael. I really appreciate your being here. I am very glad to be here. It's uh, right before the election, so it's a wonderful time to be talking to the media. (laughs) Absolutely, and there is so much to talk about. I know that you're dealing with normal and there are a lot of activities that normal on a national level is working on in terms of grading candidates. And you've put together quite a comprehensive list for Arizona. And for people who are interested in seeing cannabis move forward, this really is an important time to be looking at their ratings in terms of their favorability of cannabis or whether or not they would vote in favor of legislation. So tell me a little bit about the Arizona market, and then I want to talk to you about the national. Okay. Well, Arizona has uh, enjoyed a tremendous shift this uh, decade. Back in 2010, when the citizens passed Prop 203, the Arizona Medical Marijuana Act, the state legislature uh, and the governor's office did all they could to to shut down the program, to prevent it from opening. And now we're at a stage where the governor's office last session 
back in April, was meeting with the leaders in the industry uh, to discuss ways to improve the, the medical program. So that's a, that's a pretty clear example of how much of a difference uh, we're facing now. I was comparing notes with another state legislative watcher, you know, an advocate on cannabis reform. And we both have more A's than F's now when it comes to grading our state legislature. More people working for us than against us. That is quite a departure from the last time you were on this show, which was now almost two years ago, if you can believe that. Or actually, it was more than two years ago because it was prior to the 2016 election. And you were on with Talia Fuentes, actually. Yeah. Yeah, very early on in our show. That was a fascinating conversation in and of itself. But back then, we were actually entertaining Prop 205. And it was feeling very optimistic for us at that time. I mean, it seemed like we had a lot of momentum in the state. And I believe that one of the reasons it didn't pass is because there were some competing bills early on that never made it to the ballot. And there were groups that just felt that Prop 205 didn't go far enough, so they didn't vote in favor of it, which is really a shame because once legislation is enacted, then you can always go back and change it or improve upon it, which we've you know noticed with our medical law here. Right. But aside from that, what do you think went wrong here in Arizona that year? Well, so I, I appreciate you giving the activist community their due. They set a hard edge against Prop 205 shortly after it was filed in April of 2015. They did file their own uh, competing ballot measure. And then when that failed to, to make it to the ballot, they coalesced that into a, a pretty powerful organized no vote. So it, it, yeah, I've been having to do uh, postmortems on the 2016 election for a couple of years now. And um, the activist community working against the measure is, is one of the leading causes. I feel also that the leading voices in the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol were too self-interested. It showed they were attacked by both the left, meaning the, the activist community, the AZFMR crowd, and by the right. Sheila Polk targeted them as trying to protect and perpetuate a monopoly. Uh, so they could have approached it differently. I, I also going to give uh, credit where it's due. At that time, Governor Ducey was the leading fundraiser of the no vote. And the official no vote campaign raised like $6 million talking about fear of, of zombie crack addicts, uh, all addicted to marijuana, you know, destroying Arizona. They put a lot of time and effort into that, and uh, it affected uh, the people who respond to scare tactics. I was going to point out there was less than two, point, two percentage points difference between the yes and the no vote, something like 57,000 votes out of two and a half million cast. So it didn't take much to move the needle that little bit, and, and uh, our opposition we're pretty dedicated to it. Yeah. And, you know, and, and what I found astonishing, too, is that there were so many op-eds that received 
publication in our biggest newspaper here that were against the proposition. I thought that was really interesting and telling considering that the paper staff have written a lot of articles that are favorable toward cannabis regulation. And it was really interesting that Sheila Polk and Bill Montgomery and all of the naysayers that are you know, very vocal and get a lot of airtime here in Arizona, it, it was astonishing to me what kind of a platform they were given on so many different levels. And what else is interesting about that is the fact that they have continually tried to undermine the medical law as well. So it wasn't only that they were trying to prevent adult use from happening in the state. They've been actively advocating for changes that would harm the current medical law here. So we've been fighting an uphill battle in this state for quite some time. And campaign finance has been an enormous problem when it comes to this issue across the country, actually, because we've got so many huge lobbies that we're fighting against, not the least of which would be the private prison industry, the alcohol industry, the pharmaceutical industry. (laughs) The list goes on. Yeah, well, you talk about industries. Keep in mind, no matter what the individual reporter's sentiments may be, um, places like AZ Central, that's a massive corporate organization. And there should be little doubt that mainstream media is going to look out for corporate interests because that's who owns them. Um, at the um, Arizona Republic, the editorials editor is a man named Abe Kwok. It's K-W-A-K. And uh, for the last three years, he's rejected uh, offers of editorials on different cannabis topics, saying that it's not important to hear what Normal has to say. He uh, only wants law enforcement and industry leadership to to have expressed opinion. And that's a shame, too. Right. Yeah, it uh, limits uh, the discussion, especially when it comes to People like law enforcement, you know, they conflict of interest. They have a, a vested interest in keeping people arrested and being able to feed the prison industrial complex, the, the law and order industrial complex. So they're going to say things that are biased against cannabis in the same way that I might say things that are biased for it. But but if we only hear the one side, then you can't pretend that that's, you know, fair discussion. Yeah. Well, often the cannabis discussion <laughs> isn't always fair. Right. <laughs> and in the state, it certainly is more than obvious. But I really appreciate, though, that there is such a huge advocacy community here in Arizona, and they really do make a difference. And I know that you're very involved with the Marijuana Industry Trade Association, which, you know, we're very grateful to have that platform and that support within the cannabis community here, which is, you know, strangely for the state, we do have a thriving, robust advocacy. And most everyone who is in the industry here tend to sort of know one another and they work together fairly well, as far as I can see. And Normal's role in it is huge, obviously, too, because of 
the legal aspects of this and dealing with some of the court cases that have come down. Tell me a little bit about what you've been doing in the state legislature as well, because that's got a nice story arc to it as well. Well, we um, started out, I started out uh, as the political director for a a different activist group, uh, this homegrown activist group called Safer Arizona. And in 2013, I had been a candidate in the the 2012 election cycle, which put me face to face with a lot of legislators. You know, you have these candidate forums where, where you meet the people and it turns out that they're not gods or or super intimidating they're just people once you get start talking to them so that that like broke the ice for me ahead of time i was able to start talking to legislators i was working with a brilliant now deceased man named dennis bulky who was the the on the ground organizer for safe arizona bringing all the disparate threads together and he had written a uh defelonization bill You know, in Arizona, we have the harshest penalties for possession in America. Any amount, dust from the inside of a a baggie is enough to count as an arrest in Arizona. And that's a felony arrest. Uh, Marijuana possession is considered a class six felony. So anybody who gets arrested for marijuana in this state, that arrest goes on their record jeopardizing you know all sorts of aspects of their future I, I learned last night that you could you won't be able to get a passport if you have a felony arrest I, I hadn't realized that that was another you know sting that people would get if they got arrested so anyway um i was at the state capitol during my off times i was still a school teacher and i'd go on you know spring break and and holidays where the legislature was in session and met with the people who had gotten elected to try to talk them into backing a defelonization bill. Eventually, we found Mark Cardenas in LD19. He ultimately would introduce that bill for us for four years. Um, And during that whole time, we couldn't get anybody to pay much attention. We spent more of our time fighting uh, bills that were challenging us instead of um, being able to get people to pay attention to our positive bills. But then this last year, give credit where it's due, um, the Arizona Dispensary Association has done a great outreach effort to uh, the state legislature and the governor's office. One of the owners of Encanto Green, a guy named Bill Brothers is an RNC uh, fundraiser. So he raises money for the National Republican party. He used that as a way to connect to uh, Doug Ducey's office. And suddenly this past year, we had had bills actually get somewhere. We had a bill pass, the hemp bill. Now we have, Arizona is one of 30 states in the nation that has a uh, legalized hemp industry. So we can compete for some of, of that market. We had a bill that would have uh, established testing uh, criteria for cannabis sold in the state that got to a final vote. We had another bill that would have lowered card costs. Both of those got to a final vote on the last day of the legislature. So 
I was joking to people, usually I'm done with my bills by mid-March because they didn't get assigned to committees. And this time I was, you know, I had ringside seat for the whole experience. It was quite rewarding to, to see that kind of progress. And now as a result, I have uh, two different groups of legislators that are working with me on uh, proposed legislation. And MEDA, that's the Marijuana Industry Trade Association, who you mentioned earlier, they have a package of legislation that we're trying to help them with. And the ADA also have a package of legislation. We're expecting, even if, if the dynamics don't change at the legislature, we're expecting a productive, successful year in 2019. You know, I find it really interesting that Cannabis used to be such a partisan issue. It was more people in favor on the left than on the right. And now you're starting to see a much bigger blend of people on the right who are starting to advocate. Has that been your experience as well? Yes, it is. Um, to give one example, there's a, a legislator from the Tucson area, Todd Claude Felter, who um, is pretty consistently a conservative Republican. And in the summer of 2017, ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council, that's a, a right-wing think tank, they held their national convention in Denver that year. So Republican legislators from across the country went to Denver for, for this convention and while they were there, they were approached by, you know, the, the, the cannabis industry who held events for them, did education programs. There were 19 Arizona legislators who went to that. And uh, this Claude Felter, while he was there in the legal state of Colorado, tried a gummy worm to see, you know, see what all the fuss was about because it hadn't been part of his personal experience. He came back a changed man. So that has happened with, with different individuals. Um, my state senator, Sonny Borelli, turns out that his son, one of his children, was diagnosed with autism and cannabis has been shown to help with uh, autism. So that's caused Senator Borelli's position to shift. Um, to, you know, to give... give um, be the devil's advocate for our opposition. Most people get their awareness of cannabis when they're in their teens. So people my age, I'm 59, so that's like the age of most people in the legislatures around the country, you know, in Congress, that same age range, they all got their, their opinions about cannabis well before the medical miracles of the 1990s. Uh, so folks had hardened, set positions, and then they didn't change them for about 30 years, and now they're being approached constantly with proof of the medical miracle of, of marijuana. And so they're, they're beginning to change their ways, like I said, uh, either through personal experience or a family member uh, finds out the cannabis helps with things, and then they have to rethink. Well, maybe... Maybe it's not all just demons and evil in the cannabis world. Maybe there's something to what these advocates have been saying for decades. That is a very interesting point, too. I was speaking with Bonita Money last week. We were talking about diversity in the cannabis industry and how 
the opinions have started to evolve, but with the disproportionate impact on communities of color and in low-income communities, a lot of people who have been opposed to cannabis just haven't experienced that negative impact the way that, that others have. Right. And often, I think, in any lawmaking, you've got people who have formed opinions based on their own personal experience. And when they haven't seen the devastating impact on a family, for example, when someone is arrested for a marijuana possession charge, that can throw off an entire family and put them into a position where the arrested person can no longer find employment because of a record or they go to prison and so they lose a breadwinner in the family. And I mean, there's this downward spiral that I think most lawmakers just never have to deal with. And they don't think about these things on a personal level, which is really quite a shame. It really is. Yeah. And I've heard that too, where lawmakers have a family member who becomes ill and then they learn about the medical impact of cannabis that way. And so, yeah, and as as this becomes more mainstream in terms of the way that the media is covering it, I think it's going to continue to help. And the cat's out of the bag and there's no going back at this point. So, you know, and I know that there are a number of states right now passing uh, legislation. I know in, in North Dakota, I believe. Four states have uh, cannabis on the ballot this year. Um, Utah. And Missouri are considering uh, a medical program initiative and uh, Michigan and North Dakota, like you mentioned, are going for the full adult use. I'm expecting that all four of those will pass. What's interesting is that North Dakota didn't even have a medical program. They're going straight for the adult use. Is that your understanding of it, too? Because last time I looked, they didn't have really anything. I think they had decriminalized at some point, but I don't believe they actually ever passed a medical use. Are you aware of this? Uh, I, I'm actually, I'm pausing a second because I'm trying to make sure I'm not confusing Montana with North Dakota. I feel like North Dakota did have a medical program that passed in 2016, but um, they haven't implemented it in any legitimate fashion. That must be um, what I'm thinking, too, because I, I remember yeah. looking at the map, if you will. You know, you've got different shades of green or blue on the map when you're looking at the United States map to see where all of the legalization measures have passed. And because some actually passed, but they haven't been implemented yet, those states still look like they're just gray matter. They haven't they don't have any legislation whatsoever. And there are some. Yeah that have considered hemp, but still haven't passed any, any medical use of CBD, and which I find really astonishing considering that CBD was pretty much, hemp CBD anyway, hemp-derived CBD was sort of grouped in with that Ninth Circuit um, ruling that, that allowed hemp imports to come in. And so people were selling CBD under that until yeah. that got reversed earlier this year. And then that caused all kinds of you know, confusion amongst everyone. But you know, with, with these um, state measures too, and I know that, that you've experienced this or you're aware of it because we've talked ad nauseum at some of these um, industry trade meetings that we attend, 
in yeah. common, <clears throat> excuse me for a moment, um, some of these industry uh, events, we talk about, you know, the conundrum of, of these bills not having enough specificity when it comes to identifying uh, this constituents of the marijuana plant that are actually legal. And as we talked about in a couple of meetings and we spoke about it on the show, it, it's caused a problem. That must be what I'm thinking too. Because I, I remember looking at the map, <laughs> if you will, you know, you've got different shades of green or blue on the map when you're looking at the United States map to see where all of the legalization measures have passed. And because some actually passed, but they haven't been implemented yet, those states still look like they're just gray matter. They haven't, they don't have any legislation whatsoever. And there are some that have considered hemp, but still haven't passed any medical use of CBD, and which I find really astonishing considering that hemp-derived CBD was grouped in with that Ninth Circuit ruling that allowed hemp imports to come in. And so people were selling CBD under that until that got reversed earlier this year. And then that caused all kinds of confusion amongst everyone. But with these state measures too, and I know that you've experienced this or you're aware of it because at some of these industry events, we talk about you know, the conundrum of bills not having enough specificity when it comes to identifying constituents of the marijuana plant that are actually legal. And as we talked about in a couple of meetings and we spoke about it on the show, it, it's caused a problem, especially like within the uh, Rodney Jones case, you know, someone carrying hashish or extracts of the cannabis plant that were not specifically identified in in the medical law here in Arizona. I, I can comment on that. I, I know you have a national show, so not everybody knows what we're talking about in this case, but... Uh, Arizona's uh, AMMA, it was Prop 203 in 2010, declared that uh, patients could uh, have usable dried flour or any mixture or preparation thereof. That was uh, written in the, in the original initiative. And that was supposed to include all sorts of, you know, preparations of cannabis. For example, uh, wax which is where you take uh, the, the raw flour, you run it through a, a chemical solvent, which liquefies the active ingredients. You get rid of the cellulose, the actual, you know, now inert plant matter, and, and then you just have the active ingredients in a solution, which can be dried to create a solid, which can be consumed. Uh, and, and that's a great way of treating people who have serious health, problems. Like I use cannabis for chronic pain, so I don't need to go all that way. But folks who have MS or cancer, they need massive doses of THC and CBD in their system. And this is a great way to get it. So that's what the original authors were intending. However, in Arizona back in 1973, uh, they wrote uh, the criminal drug statute, which is what we still use to this day. It's List all the things that are considered illegal as chemical substances in Arizona. And at that point, with their limited understanding of, you know, cannabis, 
they called cannabis uh, a product that's made of the resin and marijuana the flower of the plant as if they were two separate things and and so we were from 1973 forward that was the way that law enforcement prosecuted hashish or or any substance that's made out of marijuana they called it uh, uh cannabis and it was a class four felony as opposed to marijuana which is only a class six felony still you know life destroying but the class four is much worse so i'm not sure how it's going for other states around the the, the nation i haven't heard of this kind of of crisis going on but we've been involved in battling the concentrates issue at, at normal since the fall of 2017 when uh the first patient came to us and said they had gotten charged for uh, narcotic for something they bought in a store. Now it's got uh, you know the state's attention. We're working on legislation that will remove the separate definition of cannabis from marijuana from the criminal drug statutes, and are hoping that that will be the solution. We also feel uh, that we can win in court. Uh, just this week, the state attorney general withdrew from the concentrates case so he no longer feels like it's a case worth defending. So we have to have a lot of hope that we will succeed at the Supreme Court level with that. Yeah, so I spoke with Tom Dean about this a couple of months ago, actually, when the appellate court in Arizona had actually just sent uh, Rodney Jones back to jail. And I just feel for him right now because it's the most ridiculous thing that a patient who has a medical marijuana card in the state of Arizona has product that he purchased in a dispensary, spending time in jail because of a technical error in the name of cannabis, and quite frankly, the ignorance of the jurists who who could not make the stretch to say that marijuana is cannabis and cannabis is marijuana. They're one in the same. Keep in mind, it was a split decision. There was three judges on that panel and one judge would not keep up the charade. He, he was a dissenting vote against this. Yeah. It's charade to say that they're not the same product. It really is. And, you know, especially when you do consider, I mean, in any other like civil case, you would see that the intent of a contract would sort of supersede any kind of semantical distinction. <laughs> and so it just really made no sense that they would go ahead and rule against Rodney Jones in this case. But this does happen in other states. And, you know, even in states that are far more liberal about this, you would think that there wouldn't be the same kind of issue. For example, we've talked about on this show, California, and how they were sort of going by the book when the Department of Justice, the DEA, assigned CBD its own numerical code in Schedule 1. Then all of a sudden, the Ninth Circuit, which had allowed CBD under the 2004 court case, it was astonishing to me that they sent out a directive saying, okay, well, you can't sell CBD in food anymore because of that case that came down in the Ninth Circuit when they overturned their original ruling about, you know, CBD being part of a food product in hemp that was imported. And it was just 
it sort of threw everybody for a loop and created yet more ambiguity in the law. But their law, their adult use law, didn't specify CBD as a legal substance. And so, again, you're caught in the semantics of the law. So, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that as states that are working on legislation, it's not necessarily a pre-written ballot measure, I'm hoping that they are specific and they include everything that other states have failed to include it in their law. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. To give you a reference, this week, in fact, yesterday morning, October 30th, I got a phone call from a store manager of a dispensary here in the, in the Phoenix metro area. I'm keeping her name and uh, the dispensary's name out of the discussion currently because this is now a legal matter. But she was visiting family in Cotese County. She had... Uh, cannabis products that she had purchased from her store. She was traveling compliantly, meaning that they were still in their original shopping bag, stapled shut with the receipt on the outside and in the trunk. She was stopped for a speeding ticket. The officers ended up charging her with two class four felony counts because there were some concentrate products in her purchase. But that's like this week. It's still a massive product problem. And, and this woman had both a uh, medical card and a dispensary agent card. So she, according to the law, had all the rights that she could want to, um, to possess this marijuana. This is one of the reasons that it is so imperative for people to vote in this election and upcoming elections after this, if they really believe that they need medical cannabis or if they feel strongly that we need to decriminalize altogether, we need to pay attention to the people who are serving at the national level as well as the state level because all of these problems will go away once they remove cannabis from the schedules. And there really is no good reason for cannabis to be schedule one, which is the most severe schedule. And it's right up there with LSD and heroin and other drugs with no medical use and a high potential for abuse, which we've already proven through science. We've proven through practical experience. We've proven through state laws that none of the reasons that were originally cited for putting cannabis in schedule one are true. Right. And in fact, we've found that they are complete lies. And there were ulterior motives for putting cannabis in Schedule 1. And we've talked about this ad nauseum as well. It, you know, it goes back to political and racial and, and self-serving interests for the people who put out the campaign in the 30s and for Richard Nixon back in 1970 when he enacted the Controlled Substances Act. So what would you tell people now about that? Some people will be hearing this after the election, of course, but some people will be hearing it before they vote. What would you tell them? Well, one of the first thoughts that I have is we have known since the early 90s about the endocannabinoid receptor system. In fact, the federal government had researched it well enough that by 1999, they applied for a patent for 
cannabis is a neuroprotectant. So I would tell people that anyone in, in government who tells you that cannabis is just bad is either been lied to or is lying to you. So we're at a point, I, I'm going to give people some space for, for being slow to transition, but we're at a point in, in the history of this reform movement that, that we've got to stop tolerating folks who are going to, to demonize cannabis because they were taught that as a, as a kid and it has no factual basis. One of the things that we did in our voter's guide is where I could find exact quotes from um, prohibitionists. We printed those in, in the voter's guide so people will know exactly um, what folks' positions are. For example, um, Karen Fan, Senator Karen Fan, LD1, and uh, hearing last year on using cannabis as a treatment for opioids, she said, well, why would we give junkies one drug to be addicted to over another? Which shows a complete lack of understanding, and maybe Karen Fan really doesn't understand, and that's her personal problem. But to spew such misinformation, you know, when she's in a position of power, just can't have that. I would rather vote against a person on that one issue than empower them to keep, you know, forcing the imprisonment and the devastation of tens of thousands of people. But since 1970, over 20 million Americans have been arrested for cannabis charges. I'm one of them. Uh, that's that's gargantuan scale of injustice. We can't just keep putting up with that because they didn't know any better. Right. And the lies, perpetuating lies. That's just part of our political discourse these days, unfortunately. But if we continue to allow politicians and other people of influence to continue putting out lies like this. I mean, the only defense we have against that is going to the ballot box and casting a vote. So I'm glad that you're putting that information out on the website. And I really encourage people to go to normalarizona.org or go to, I believe the national organization is norml.org. Is that correct? Or is that a... Is yeah. That a yeah. Yeah, so, that's, that's them. We're uh, normal in Arizona.org. So the word in Arizona after the normal. Um, right. Yeah. Here in this state, um, just some, some scores for, for people who might be listening between now and the election. Uh, there's really no comparison when it comes to cannabis issues between cinema and uh, McSally. McSally is a she has done some support for veterans issues in general. I'm not disputing that, but she's like 0 for 6 when it comes to cannabis reform. Um, when it, the governor's race, um, Ducey is improving his position over this last year, like I noted earlier in the broadcast. But uh, David Garcia has been working in favor of the cannabis community from the beginning. At the, you got Mark Burnovich who recently backed off of his position on prosecuting patients for concentrates. They, and, and word is, it's because he was afraid he was going to lose the election. So, you know, there's some clear choices that people are, are going to be able to make. Um, 
many of the older uh, conservative legislators, both the Democrats and the Republicans, the ones that are conservative, uh, have F scores. And there's, there's, they've had like plenty of opportunities to learn the truth about cannabis. Uh, last year, we held 66 meetings of, well, we held meetings with 66 different representatives or senators of the 90 total. So all of them are getting the information. Some of them are refusing to accept it. With that in mind, I want to point out, though it's not going to really be a change in power, uh, Democrat versus Republican, we have two incoming people that I'm looking forward to working with uh, at Lake. Um, Jennifer Longdon, an LD21, who has worked in the cannabis industry, and now she's going to be a legislator who has worked in the industry. Uh, Diego Rodriguez, an LD27, is running unopposed uh, for a state representative position. Your Phoenix area listeners may recall that Diego Rodriguez was Bill Montgomery's challenger in 2016 for county attorney, and a big supporter of Prop 205, the tax and regulate program. So so having these kinds of people coming into our state legislature is going to improve our odds of making positive change immensely. Yeah. And the efforts of your group and of MEDA and, you know, other organizations in, in Arizona have been extraordinary in terms of reaching out to these people. And I'm actually very excited. I think we have a really good chance of getting a lot of pro-cannabis people into office. And I think you're right. Across the country, people who have been in the Senate and in Congress for you know, more than 20 years, even once they learn the truth of cannabis, that it's not the evil drug that it's been made out to be over the last 80 years, once they learn that truth, they're still stymied by the stigma that has been associated with it for so long. And a lot of them are voting for legislation based on fear or fear of not being accepted any longer because they're advocating for something that they've been taught their entire lives is an evil drug. So, right. yeah, so you're you're right. And I think that, you know, as a lot of these seats that have been held for s- several decades start to open up, I think that we're going to see a huge change in the support for new regulation on a national level and in these state elections. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Battling that stigma is essential, even in a state that has supposedly liberating uh, medical marijuana laws like here in Arizona. Uh, Veterans are still stigmatized and and actually forbidden from talking with the VA about cannabis because of that stigma. If we're going to have a stigma about somebody, quote, recreationally using cannabis, that's one thing. But when the patients who are depending on it for their well-being suffer as well, that's what we have to get rid of that stigma. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's so important. And it's especially important for people who who really, really need cannabis for medical use. Yeah. It's saving lives everywhere. And people who won't take the time to learn about it, there's no excuse. There's absolutely no excuse at this point. We've got the science. 
it's true we don't have enough science in the United States by organizations that are recognized as authorities by the United States government. But certainly other countries have plenty of research, you know, Israel being one of them, and Spain and Australia. And I mean, throughout Europe, you're seeing studies at higher academic levels proving the science behind this and proving that there's no harm, no physical harm to a human for consuming cannabis. Um, That's, you know, first and foremost, do no harm. But in addition to that, it's actually saving lives and improving the quality of lives for people who have previously been on antipsychotics and benzodiazepines and, you know, opiates and all of these other things that are known for, you know, (laughs) causing suicidal thoughts and actions or, you know, sending people over the cliff in an overdose. And we just have no excuse. Right. I'm imagining that your audience is familiar with the story of Brandy Williams and her son, Logan, uh, who are, Logan is like the poster child for uh, cannabis therapy for pediatric autism. Right. I, I have seen in person a couple of drops of cannabis oil change him from from being a helpless wreck to being a regular kid. Yeah, and yeah. I, yeah, and I you're right and actually people would remember this because we had her on 2 years ago now and then we had her on again last year. And the second time we had her on, she was on with Dr. Christian Bogner, who's a pediatric autism specialist. Oh, yeah. And if anyone has not heard those episodes with Brandy Williams, just do a search on our website, thecannabisreporter.com, and um, type in Brandy Williams, and you'll see those two episodes. They will break your heart. What has been astonishing since the first time I had her on the show, she could not take Logan out into public at all because he had such self-damaging behavior and he could not sit still and she couldn't take her eyes off of him. He couldn't go to school. He couldn't even go to the grocery store. They had to basically create a padded room out of their entire house and lock everything up because every sharp corner on a piece of furniture was a hazard. And to see the transition that happened after just a couple of weeks of being on cannabis oil. It was night and day for her. I mean, she could actually get him in the car. And now she's taking him out in public. I saw Logan just a couple of weeks ago. And every time I see him, I start to cry. I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful thing to see this child actually interacting with people. And, you know, he'll look at you and, and you can talk to him and you know that he's listening to you and he can even respond and he's, he's got his iPad. And I mean, it's just a beautiful thing to see the transition and to see how happy they are that they're able to interact with their son in a way like most normal parents interact with their children. So yeah. I want to point out with uh, Williams' autism experience in contact, late spring, early summer, Miss Williams, along with Jack Wilburn, who is with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition, uh, had uh, a petition to DHS to add autism as a qualifying condition. We were at the appeal process this summer. Uh, Dr. Christian Bogner was one of the telecommunication witnesses. In other words, he, he came in on a 
you know, Skype or whatever, testified into the uh, hearing. We were gaining ground. And then the Jones appeal verdict came out. And the state dismissed our, our appeal for autism saying, well, we can't let parents give their children narcotics. So just, just to really hammer home the scale of, of the problem that this Jones verdict caused, there were 47,000, or there are 47,000 autism patients in the state who would have qualified for cannabis treatment if this condition had been allowed. So not only is it the existing patients that are suffering, there's another 50,000 autism patients who never even get a chance. Right. Unless there's a workaround like, you know, the child is in pain. And in Logan's case, you know, the only benefit to him being in pain from his self-deprecating behavior was the fact that he then could qualify under the state law for the pain that he suffered from his behavior as a patient of autism. So it's really unfortunate, you know, and it, it kind of creates an environment where parents have to look for something else that might qualify, you know, and autism does have a lot of symptoms that come along with it. But it should be more straightforward. You're right. And that was heartbreaking when that happened because it looked like it was going to pass. You know, and again, we go back to elected officials. We need to make sure that people who are in favor of reform get elected into office so that they can benefit patients, you know, override some of these people who are petrified of making it more accessible. And people say, well, you know, children are in their formative years. They shouldn't be taking it because some obscure studies said that it, it wasn't good for children. Well, you know what? Neither are narcotics that are given out like candy when you take a kid to the doctor for a broken leg. They get opiates, which no child should ever really have unless they're in acute pain. But they have no problem writing prescriptions for that sort of thing. And well, as Brandy pointed out, uh, she was told that she shouldn't be giving her son cannabis because it's supposedly linked to limiting his intelligence. And she says, limiting his intelligence, he's beating his head against the wall till it bleeds. That's limiting his intelligence. Yeah. Well, and, you know, he was suffering concussion after concussion. And we now know that repetitive concussions can cause CTE, which causes premature dementia and depression and suicide and all sorts of things. You know, it's just, yeah, it's astonishing to me. I get angry when I think about the rationale behind denying patients their right to access a medicine that's doing a lot less harm than any other commonly prescribed drug. It's just, it really is astonishing. Yeah. Well, let me encourage your, your listeners. I mean, we've talked a lot about the gloom and doom, but as I pointed out, when I was a kid, just some dust was 10 years in prison. And now we have, there's actually 47 states across America that have some sort of provision for cannabis. So we've made progress, but come January, when the new legislative session starts, there's normal leap. MEDA, the ADA, all of these groups are 
going to be uh, it, you know, presenting legislative package, packages for reform on cannabis laws. The defelonization, concentrates, autism, who can uh, sign a recommendation for a medical card, card cost, testing, all these things are going to be on the table. And our legislature seriously responds to what the public says. Um, we, in 2016, Jay Lawrence tried to introduce a bill that would have made uh, pregnancy a disqualifying condition. And within a week, there were 500 people at the state capitol protesting against it. He withdrew his bill. Right. So we can use it to stop bills. We can also use it to encourage good bills. And, and that's what I'm hoping that your listeners will do. They'll They'll pay attention to your show. They'll pay attention to like our website. And when it comes time for action, they'll respond to the call for action. Absolutely. I talk about this a lot and it is so important for us to stay engaged. I mean, elections are one thing, but what happens in between the elections really does matter. And especially when you pick up the phone and you call in to advocate or reject something that's been introduced in legislature, whether on the state level or on the federal level, every time you call in, you are counted as a thousand constituents in big cities. And because not everybody's going to call in, but those who are passionate about it, who do, they basically count a thousand times versus people who don't call in, you know, the, it's the squeaky wheel gets the grease syndrome. And if we stay engaged and we pay attention to some of these laws, and especially the laws that are passed during a time when you've got, you know, horrifying things happening in the news cycle, you never hear about them. You need to really stay on top of it and then pick up the phone or look up your representative's websites and you know, fill out their contact form to tell them that you approve of something or disapprove of something. And that really does make a difference. That and standing out in front of their offices with picket signs, that works too. But not, but not everybody can go to Washington, you know, not everybody can travel to their state capital. So it's so important to just go ahead and pick up the phone or write a letter. Those who are trying to sculpt our media presence will tell you that, that they don't like long hairs and tie-dyes going out to protest. But I'm going to say that those people are Americans, too. Um, and it takes all the voices from, from the ragged to the refined to be showing you know, the full scope of the marijuana issue. Uh, our opponents want to create a stereotype that's narrow and fixed and you know, readily demonizable. But but when you see the wide variety of from the 92-year-old grandmas to the two-year-old epilepsy patients, it, it's a broader spectrum and, and, and it humanizes the issue. So I, I want everybody who's listening, no matter what their station in life, if they're a cannabis consumer, to go ahead and, and feel, be reminded that they have the right to stand up and complain when their government is pressing that's a really good point that you make, and I think it's a very timely point that you make because right now, how can I say this? I don't want to disparage anyone who's serving in government. God bless them for being there. But 
we're at a place right now where a lot of people are being ostracized because of the color of their skin or because of the religion they practice or because of the country that they came from. And, you know, often you hear people talking on their bully pulpit telling you that you're not human, but your representatives who represent you on the state level, when they hear your voice, regardless of what political side they fall on, when they hear your voice, you are a human. You are not a Democrat or a Republican. You are a human and you are their constituent, regardless of what party you're in. And they're there to serve you. Your tax dollars pay their salary. And I tell people this all the time because, you know, there's a certain intimidation factor that's going on right now. And if you don't believe in the politics that are being espoused out there at rallies or in congressional hearings and you feel like you're being insulted by people who are there to represent you, that's especially when you need to not be intimidated and pick up the phone and let them know that you're human and that you care about an issue. You know, I think that one of the problems that we're facing right now is that people get their news in a bubble. You know, people gravitate toward the cable stations that they feel is aligned with their beliefs. And on social media, rarely do people gravitate towards sites that hold a different point of view. So we're all preaching to the choir and we're all in our respective bubbles. And the politicians that believe one way are on one network and another set of politicians who believe another way are on another network. But no one's talking to one another. And when you do engage in the political process, when you do pick up the phone and call the staffers in your representative's office, you are crossing that line so that they must hear you whether they pay attention to your networks or not. And so mm -hmm. that is another reason why it is just so important, you know, that and voting. <laughs> but voting, that's just a numbers game, really. And if your favorite politician doesn't get into office, you can't just give up and go sit on the couch and go, oh, well, I guess I have to wait until the next election. No, we have to get involved. Yeah. We have to stay involved. So, yeah. <sighs> Very good advice. So, Michael, anything else that you have a burning desire to let people know before we close this? Well, I, I want to reassure uh, Arizona patients that the uh, concentrates issue is um, being addressed. And in fact, the industry is taking a responsible role and in challenging the unjust uh, concentrates ruling in protecting patients that have been uh, arrested for class four narcotics possession felonies. I, let me just be really clear as I say this to your listeners. If you are a patient who has been arrested this summer or fall for a class four narcotics possession felony of a, like a marijuana concentrate, it could be wax, it could be a bait pen, hand lotion, any of that, definitely if you contact normal, because we're working with the ADA, the Arizona Dispensary Association, to create legal defense strategies for anybody who is, who is being charged with this ridiculous charge, because it's, it's gonna be overturned. And so if we can 
help protect people from from the ravages of the of the case in the meantime we want to do that now you can go straight to normal in arizona.org our hotline number is 928-234-5633 that's it 928-234-5633 i get about a dozen calls a week from either patients or defendants you know so I don't, there's 13,000 people get arrested each year in Arizona for cannabis possession. I wish I could help every one of them, but I can only help the ones that I know about. Well, you know what? It's really nice to know that people do have a place to at least express their grievances and become part of a community that is trying to help them. So I will definitely put that information on the website so that, you know, people can find you and we'll do our best to share this widely before the election so that people can hear it when they're making their choices. And I appreciate that, that you are out there trying to help this community. And I think it's just such an important cause. And we all have a lot to gain when these rules change. And ultimately, when cannabis is considered less harmful than alcohol, <laughs> because it is less harmful than alcohol, and it, it should not be illegal. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if one day, just like the amendment of the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, which was passed that removed prohibition of alcohol, we will have a constitutional amendment that r- removes the prohibition of cannabis. And I believe it'll save us on so many levels, not just health-wise, but environmentally, socially. Our criminal justice system will change. We will improve our communities, provide opportunity, economic opportunity for people who have been marginalized. I mean, there's so much good that can come out of this. So, uh, Remember, audience, that voting is the wake-up call to the world that you need to participate in. Marijuana absolutely. is quite clearly an issue that that the average person has succeeded in getting changes in. Little people working together are changing the government right now before our very eyes. I wish it was happening instantly, but it is happening nonetheless. So that's a great reason to work on cannabis reform. You can see change happening. Absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so glad we had this conversation. Thank you for working me in before the election. This has been really good. Well, thank you. So once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I'd personally like to thank my guest, Michael Weiser, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about the work that he's doing with Normal, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and there I will post his bio along with information about the candidate lists on Normal, links to his website, and the hotline that you can call if you need to. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech and Healthterra. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. We'd also like to give a shout out to our brand new partners at the Growers Network. We're delighted to be working with you. We'd also like to thank Eric Goodall, the composer of our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, and the team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. 
And many thanks go out to our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, go to the polls, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.